Welcome to Thrive, a series that explores how founders, leaders, and changemakers innovate, grow, and navigate in an age of constant disruption. All right, so uh, hello everyone. Uh, once again, my name is Phil Kim, and I will help uh, guide this conversation today with our special guest, Melissa Waters. So thank you very much for joining us uh, Thank you today. for having me. Uh, so today, uh, we're going to talk about uh, a number of topics uh, related to Melissa's career and where she works uh, currently at Lyft and the industry in which uh, Lyft operates, and then some lessons learned about uh, all of these things that she's experienced in her career with the hopes that the ideas that come out of this conversation will be beneficial to you and to spur more conversation amongst yourselves uh, and in the places where you work. So um, I'd like to just get started by getting to know you and sure. allowing us to get to know you a little bit and to learn about your personal journey and mm -hmm. your career arc. And I thought it'd be helpful to uh, read just a little snippet of what uh, Melissa has on her LinkedIn profile because <laughs> I think it captures uh, a lot of the, the cool experiences that she's had throughout her career. And so she said she's a, an accomplished marketing executive with over 15 years of experience in high growth businesses passionate about building brands, uh, creating groundbreaking campaigns, investing in high-functioning teams, and driving successful cross-functional collaborations. She's an entrepreneurial leader. She likes to sit at the intersection of macro and micro and balancing strategic vision with flawless execution. And most importantly, she likes to thrive in a dynamic environment and loves facing new challenges. And so with that as a, as a tee-up, uh, We'd love to learn about some uh, highlights about your career and how you were able to experience all these things that you uh, describe in your profile mm. and, and what I've just read to, to the yeah. audience. Yeah, happy to give you a little bit of an overview, which I think tells kind of a meandering and interesting story, which I'm sure many of you experience. Um, we oftentimes start our careers thinking that it's going to be a straight line, start our lives thinking it's going to be a straight line. and. Uh, the beauty of this is actually that it's not, and uh, it's sometimes it's a little bit of a ping-pong approach, and I've always guided my decisions based on um, a couple of things. One, am I passionate about what I'm doing, and two, am I working with people that I want to get up every day and work with? Um, and I started my career actually coming out of undergrad, spending my early 20s in nonprofit management, and I liken actually that world of nonprofit management to the world of entrepreneurship because you learn very early on that you have big challenges, a lot to accomplish, and very few resources by which to do so. So um, you know, I spent those early years doing a number of different nonprofit management uh, roles and made a decision uh, to go to business school in order to really move into a corporate marketing role and knew that going in and, and the Babson program, we joke that I showed up uh, the first day at, at school and showed up with my you know, resume and a very type A and showed up with my list of target companies. I was very organized um, about what I wanted to do coming out of the program and uh, basically spent two years on a hunt for a really great either marketing rotational program or a business rotational program thinking that that'd be a great stepping stone coming out of nonprofit management going into business school and coming out with kind of a postdoc if you will um, and like all great you know best laid plans i went through business school very organized and got my rotational program and got it all done and signed paperwork and yay for me i did the thing i was set out to accomplish and three weeks before I graduated from business school, my husband got his dream job in the Bay Area. So best laid plans got thrown out the window. I quit the job before I ever started. 
I sold a house, moved across the country. He left immediately, so I was doing all this by myself. And in the midst of all of that in 2007, found out I was pregnant. <laughs> so uh, in, in the layers of all of those challenges, I show up in the Bay Area. I know no one. My husband is deep into his new job. I see him maybe a few minutes a day. I have to figure out what I'm going to do next with my life. Uh, I have to start networking. I'm a big networker, so I start networking my way through the Bay Area. And I'm one of those people that the moment that I become pregnant, I am immediately enormous. So um, I, I like went on every job interview, just bigger and bigger and bigger. Let's put it this way. My mother-in-law said to me, I was very few weeks pregnant, and she was like, you're pregnant. I mean, like I get big very fast. So. I, uh, I go on these job interviews, you know, in the Bay Area, and uh, I went through five rounds at Apple, three rounds at Netflix, a number of rounds with a bunch of different companies, and every time I'd go back in, I was bigger and bigger and bigger. It was that kind of really awkward moment of, if you've seen the movie Knocked Up, and that moment where she's trying to, her boss is trying to negotiate with her about what they're going to do about the fact that she's pregnant and going to have to leave the job, and she's not giving away at all that she's pregnant. I had those moments in interviews, so it was pretty funny. Um, so I did 35 informational interviews in the Bay Area before I got employed. And I um, basically networked with anybody I could, landed in, ultimately landed in a CPG company, which was great, you know, kind of the other option for postdoc marketing um, to go into a CPG company to learn the true ropes of uh, how to build a brand was in a CPG organization in the Bay Area, which if any of you are in CPG in the Bay Area, is kind of a funny juxtaposition of being in a relatively traditional industry inside of a, uh, a Bay Area environment that is full of technology and entrepreneurship. So it was kind of an interesting blend where you kind of have this moment where you're like, do I want to be in CPG in San Francisco or do I actually more want to be in tech? And I, I very much, my husband was a tech reporter at the time. I find myself very much gravitating towards tech. I switched over to working for Flip Video um, in 2000, gosh, was it nine, 10, something like that. Um, went to work for them uh, and then was nine months pregnant with my second kid and Flip closed. So I've gone through quite an, in, an interesting moments of like, wow, husband wakes me up at 5.30 in one morning and says, you need to get up because your business is closed. Again, nine months pregnant, like, okay, another transition. <laughs> Got to figure out how to get through this one. And, and then I landed at Pandora, spent five years there, um, was on maternity leave last summer interviewing for roles, and I've shown up at Lyft in October coming off my third maternity leave. So I've, bl I've had this an, an interesting blend of every single time I made a job change, it happens to correspond with being pregnant and having a baby. So <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a pro at this point. I'm not having any more kids. Uh, but I'm a pro at this point of juggling both uh, a lot of change in life with a lot of change in business all at the same time. So I, I'm kind of one of those people you can throw anything at me. I'm battle-tested at this point. Great. So uh, that, that's that's quite a remarkable arc so yeah, far that you've described, yeah, and yeah. you haven't uh, hit your full stride yet, I imagine. I, I hope not. And uh, and so before we go on, I wanted to kind of cycle back just a few clicks and talk sure. about your Babson experience. Since yeah. uh, you know, I'm a professor at Babson, you're an alum. We have mm -hmm. uh, quite a few students uh, and alums here in the audience. I was, I was wondering if you can talk about maybe a, a fond memory or. Mm lesson that you learned at Babson that was uh, applicable to your many transitions and your current work uh, at Lyft? 
Yeah, a few big things, uh, you know, for me are really poignant about my experience at Babson. Um, one, just, you know, I, I mean, I, I'll just say that I had an amazing experience there and I just loved the, the staff and the professors and my colleagues and, and other students because everybody was so caring and it's such a small community. I think I'm sure you will really appreciate that being a professor there. It is not. Um, a campus where there's just thousands and thousands of people and you feel lost in a sea, which was one of the reasons, main reasons I, I chose it. So I, I think it's just a remarkable place. But the, the big thing, themes that I took away from my experience there that I still use today are, you know, really being comfortable with ambiguity and being comfortable with discomfort, basically, kind of finding that right place around uh, I, I kind of liken that, uh, or I, I say to myself all the time that if I'm not a little bit uncomfortable, then it means I'm not learning and I'm not growing and I'm not stretching in some way, and, and I don't like that. So I like that ambiguity and discomfort. Um, the other piece was that I really took away from Babson and uh, so appreciate about the style of learning was the always approaching things from an interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary approach. So I enter every conversation, obviously, as a marketer but I enter it as a business person, and I think that Babson uniquely prepares you to do that because the approach of the way the professors teach and, and are designing the course and the curricula is really to think holistically, think 360, instead of thinking in your silos and then having it be on the student to have to bring those all together. The, the professors really approach it in a multi multidisciplinary way. So. Um, Comfort with ambiguity and interdisciplinary thinking are two of the things that I still use every day. That's um, great. That's great. And, and I'm glad to hear those themes come out because certainly as, as faculty, uh, we want to encourage uh, that in our, in our curriculum and have our students practice that in our coursework and actually use it mm. after they graduate because we know that it's uh, ingrained in, in what we do on, on a daily basis. I'm glad yeah. to hear that. So I also want to talk a little bit about motherhood and <laughs> being a, a, an executive and how you're able to handle all of the challenges that go with, with those kinds of, of yeah. uh, situations. Uh, I appreciate that you're so willing to share about uh, those, those situations in your life and the transitions that, that you've experienced. And so I, I, when we were talking uh, before the session started, you said today was take your children to work day yep. with Lyft. Mm -hmm. And so this uh, hopefully is a, a topic that is top of mind for you. And it we'd is. love to hear a little bit more about uh, how you're able to juggle all this and any advice that you would have for uh, moms or dads uh, with, yeah. with young children and how to balance all of that. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, um I'm sure many of you know and you experience this yourselves, it's not an easy thing to do every day. It's tricky and there are all sorts of challenges. Um, I think that one, uh, you know, I believe that it's about, kind of as I said before, you know, about the way I've chosen uh, the career path has been very much, am I challenged? Do I love this problem? Do I want to go solve it? And do I want to work with the people on, you know, that I work with on this problem? And so I kind of equate the same thing to, how I think about um, balancing and juggling. I don't think there's ever balance, but juggling being a working mother. Um, I, I think a lot of it is the choice I've made in my partner and my husband being incredibly supportive and somebody who's who, when I feel down about can I do all of this, he's the first person to lift me back up. So there's that um, and the supportive family I have. But I've always had bosses who have been very supportive of me being a working mother. And I think that that's 
really critical and it's something that I have now passed you know down and taken on as a responsibility of being the boss of a department which is you know really new for me um, so I worked for the same guy for seven years and he always said to me between flip and, and Pandora and he always said to me you're a mom first you're a human first and you are you know obviously here as a marketer in these companies but you're a mom first and you're a human first so do what you need to do to get your work done and, and organize your life however you need to organize it. And the, the thing about that is that when you respect people who work for you, I find that they step up in ways that, you know, when you have tremendous respect for your employees, they step up in ways that even can surprise you. And so I worked harder for him than I probably work, would have worked for anyone who approached me differently. So um, I try to take that same uh, approach with my employees and my staff and and say listen you know we have really high expectations I'm totally aware of that and we oftentimes especially in the startup environment have um, timelines that are incredibly aggressive and that require a tremendous amount of commitment from you um, yet at the same time I'm going to approach this as you know you needing to do what you need to do to get that done and, and be flexible around that and so I find that my staff show up and my employees show up uh, and deliver in ways that demonstrate that com that commitment mm -hmm. between us. Um, and so I, I'm a big believer actually in hiring working parents and working mothers because we are by far the most efficient humans on the planet. <laughs> um, I, I can get more done in a day than, you know, when I see people, you know, chatting about various things, I'm like, I got, I got stuff to do. We can do this in two minutes, you know? Like everything is on the really tight timeline all about efficiency um, and I also time shift a lot of my work in order to go home and have evening time with my kids so I can see them. I have a one-year-old daughter who just turned one two days ago. I have a nine-year-old, a six-year-old, and a one-year-old. So, you know, my big kids are wanting me to come to school programs. I volunteered in my daughter's class, six-year-old daughter's class this week and then reserve some morning time on Tuesday of this week to be home for my daughter's first birthday. So. You know, how I find pockets of time to do the things that make me feel like I can walk out the door and be a whole human being at work um, are things that the people I've always worked for have said that that's, that's okay. Do that. Do whatever it takes for you to be a human being and show up in a, in a, in a, in a way that's going to make you feel whole at work. I feel incredibly lucky at Lyft that, um, you know, it is an intense environment. I'm not going to lie. It's a, it's a late stage startup. It's a very, very intense and competitive environment. However, we have this enormous sign and it's one of our core principles. We have an enormous sign that greets you when you walk in that says, be yourself. And that to me says a huge amount about the way the company mm -hmm. treats its, its people. Um, and I certainly treat my uh, team that way too, which is, you have to be your whole self at work or otherwise you're not going to be as productive as you could possibly be. So if we, if we can treat you as a whole person and you can be able to bring your whole self to work, then we know that that's going to have um, great outcomes for not only the individual employee, but the company as a whole. Great. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. So I'd like to now uh, transition the conversation to uh, some macro themes about mm -hmm. the industry. And, and uh, to do that, I wanted to ask the audience a, a quick question. How many of you use a ride-sharing service at least once a day? A couple times a week? At least once a week? All right, so we have an uh, um, increasing number of hands going up uh, with, with those three questions. Uh, a statistic that I found quite interesting is that um, only 15% of Americans have tried ride-sharing. 
And so obviously we have somewhat of a biased Early audience here in, uh, <laughs> in the Bay Area, but uh, it's an industry that's still in its early stages. 0.4% of miles driven on the road today are from ride sharing. So if you think about the entire market upside and the potential of this category, it's massive. Um, and we are so accustomed, I think, in the Bay Area especially, to, be, to believe that this is just the way it's always been. And I'm so struck by the fact that Lyft is not even five years old yet. So we're, we're really you know, early, early, early days in this category. Yeah. So maybe we can just start with a, a general question. What do you think the opportunities are in this category, in this industry, in the ride-sharing industry for companies like Lyft? Well, our ultimate vision and hope and dream and what we work on every day is to ultimately change the way cities are constructed. So cities today are built around making cars able to be driven through cities and around cities. So, um, and accounting for how we take care of cars. So the number of parking garages that we have, the number of um, streets that have parking spaces, everything is designed around how we move cars. And ultimately what we are trying to do is is build a future in which cities are designed around people. And so if you take that construct and just for a moment think about um, the way our streets are designed, the way buildings are designed, the way uh, cities are designed, uh, if, you, if you were to take a clean slate and say, how would we design this if, in, if, mo if parking were not an issue, if traffic were not an issue, and in fact we were just trying to maximize for mobility, um, what would cars look like and what would cities look like? And we have a vision that someday cars are rooms on wheels, that they are not, in fact, you know, designed the way that we currently have them designed, um, and that cities are not designed to uh, park cars. And so um, when you get to that kind of very big, heady, macro space, you know, it kind of like feels so far out there. Um, but the truth is that, you know, I, I, I think the rate of innovation is going to be such that that's not going to feel so, so super far away um, in the next few years. So when, when we think about that, you know, we start today with the fact that we're building this network. We're building a transportation network and uh, Lyft as a ride sharing company and ride sharing as a category is building a network of how people move in this country and other countries. And you can see how on top of that gets layered, um, then how do you bring efficiency to the system? And so we are four and a half, five years into this. Uh, we have grand plans and we have um, you know, a lot of thoughts around how we can change the future of cities. And today we are uh, focused on really building the right network within the US. So you mentioned uh, the, the possibilities of new technologies entering mm -hmm. into the, the transportation space. Mm -hmm. Uh, what are some of those technologies that you think will either enable you to accomplish your vision of restructuring the cities and how people move around, uh, as well as uh, challenges that you'll have to contend with? To yeah. Well, the challenges are long. I mean, the, you know, this is not an easy thing. We're talking about, um, you know, a category that is like, you know, air. I mean, it's just, it's a, it affects everybody. And really, when you get into it, it's very, very layered in the origin of how we built this country and so it's just really layered with all sorts of uh, things I and mean, policy and um, economics and socioeconomic uh, components so it's it's, it's complex um, 
the tech from the technology standpoint, you know, everyone obviously you guys I'm sure read papers daily, and this category is just fascinating uh, to watch. Um, every major company is getting into this industry to try to understand um, how their businesses will ultimately be affected by this and how to position themselves to to compete in this way. Um, but the way we move is a business that not just affects humans and people and um, you know, kind of our transit from getting from point A to point B, but how we move goods and how we move services. And so it's, it's going to have massive implications. The, the layers of technology today that we think about are, you know, the actual hardware and the cars and automobiles and the way that they're designed. And we think about the brains of the AI that helps a car autonomously operate. Um, and then the network with which those two things do operate. So those are the three components of, of the world of autonomous vehicles or self-driving vehicles. Um, and there are many companies playing in all three of those spaces. And so it's this perfect kind of um, co-opetition that is happening in the category right now as, as all of those players converge and try to figure out what their position is. So um, lots of technology to watch, lots of business objectives to watch. And lots of, you know, then of course the, the layers of ramifications around policy and, and structural changes um, that will fall out of that too. So this sounds like a very dynamic uh, industry to, to compete in and to try mm -hmm. to operate and to grow a business. Uh, in the audience, I know we have a, a strategy professor. Mm. And I'm wondering if you can kind of think about strategy for a second. Mm. Uh, what, what are some kind of themes that go through the minds of leaders like yourself running ride-sharing companies? What are some topics that you'll have to contend with so that your company can actually grow and succeed and be around in several years when these new technologies are going to come on and yeah. become more mature and available? You know, that is, that I would say that, you know, just between friends here, that's one of my biggest observations coming in this category is that you have to actually operate at polar ends of a spectrum every day. And what I mean by that is that Ride sharing today, our current business, is so much about how do we balance a marketplace every day in a really micro, on a really micro level, right? So we are, our business is making sure there are enough drivers at a moment that a person is calling for a car in every single market across the United States. So as busy as San Francisco and New York might be to as, you know, as infrequent a ride might be in Boise. And solving for market balancing in every different, you know, a, a kind of space uh, that that plays that, that plays out on a daily basis for millions of people, is is an operations, you know, phenomena, honestly. And at the same time that we're running a business doing that, we have this enormous kind of layer of challenge around where this category is going with all those things I listed before, which are these macro, heady, massive questions. And so, how do you um, responsibly take care of a micro market balancing business at the same time that you play in something that is so future and obtuse and difficult to kind of um, you know uh, you know think about so that I think is the core challenge is that we happen to be in a category that is not a, uh, a category that asks you to stop at um, you know some categories, I'm going back to my CPG, CPG days, like asks you to stop at we've put the product on the shelf and now we just need to sell the product, right? So some categories that you work in, 
there's a relative endpoint that you can kind of see how the cycle goes and it's not mm -hmm. asking you to flex up to this really totally different dynamic that might be coming. Um, this one is not that. This, this category is how do you operate on a micro level and also plan for distant future at the same time. And so that is truly a challenge when you're running a startup that has to be capitalized, um, that has to be uh, you know, supported in its growth to do two businesses at one time, essentially. So it sounds like rather than having a, a company that's static, it's a company that's evolving. Yes. And it's almost a case study that's continuing with new chapters written on a yes. daily basis. Yeah. And so maybe we can uh, use that as a segue to talk more specifically about Lyft now and mm -hmm. your, your role at Lyft. Uh, Lyft was founded in 2012 wow. mm -hmm. and um, recently it raised uh, another $600 million. Mm -hmm. um, is that a Series G, I mm, believe? I or? think so, yeah. Yeah, and, and so now it has a... <laughs> yes, many, many series. Uh, many series. <laughs> and uh, post-money valuation upwards of seven, seven and a half billion dollars. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, it's a high growth business um, with lots of anticipation among investors oh, yeah. to accomplish financial targets and, mm -hmm. and succeed. So with all that, at the same time, Lyft is a company with a set of core values, Yes. Uh, a vision that you nicely uh, shared with us a few minutes ago. And I'm wondering how you can uh, if you can talk about balancing the two, that you have these financial targets that investors are looking to achieve mm -hmm. and that uh, the company wants to deliver, mm -hmm. but at the same time trying to stay true to its core mission and core values that the founders had in mind when they yeah. launched the business. Yeah. Well, I think that, like most startups, you're pretty close to the people who built the business and the founders have a tremendous impact on the DNA of a company at this stage when you're only a handful of years old. And um, the beauty of Lyft is that because there are co-founders and there are two people, we get the wonderful elements of two humans kind of coming into this company. So Logan, uh, you know, is the kind of technology, what I would call the head side of our business, which is, you know, he really designed and built the product from a project, product and engineering perspective. And John comes from a background in hospitality mm. and a commitment to treating people really well when we do operate. And so the, the combination of building and building the right product and offering it in a, the right way is in fact the magic and beauty and intersection of Lyft. And so when we operate every day, as I mentioned before, we're you know in a highly competitive category, it's a really intense startup, all those great things, we still approach our business as we did in the early days with a deep, deep commitment to treating our constituents really well. So uh, you know, John and Logan used to uh, interview all the drivers on the platform when we first started. I mean, literally got in the cars with them and interviewed them and made sure that they felt comfortable and safe and all those great things. Um, and onboarded them, handheld them through the process and onboarded them like deep care for our driver population. And that's still, even though we are, you know, by far, you know, well, well, well past that and scaling well beyond that being feasible, uh, that DNA and that legacy has, has, has been part of who we are. And we take that same care to our passenger experience and we take the same care to our employees. So as I mentioned before, being you know, a values-driven company, you know, there are some core values that we have. One is be yourself. Um, two is make it happen, which is this, you know, talking about entrepreneurship, 
I, I would say that we have a, a true palpable commitment to try to not ever be a bureaucratic big company. Uh, that's hard to do when you're actually 1,600 people and you are becoming a bureaucratic big company, but we're trying very hard to hang on to our entrepreneurial DNA. And so the make it happen is, you know, core value is, is really empowering and emboldening everyone within the corporate and within the organization to feel as though they have the power to make change. So you are given permission to show up as yourself, show up and see white space and make change happen. So um, it is a very bottoms up entrepreneurial spirit organization. It is not a tops down organization. So that, that's very interesting. And then the um, third one was uplift others, is uplift others. And that is basically how we work. So be yourself, make a lot of great things happen, but when you do it in the process, make sure you uplift others. And so it sets a tone of collaboration. It sets a tone of mission being mission driven. And I find that mission driven organizations that have a big, hairy, audacious goal and have everybody pointing at that goal um, actually gets rid of a lot of the politics that you can sometimes feel in organizations because you're just focused on the goal and you're all about the work and less about how you, you know, like the kind of politics of how you get things done. And with the value of uplifting others, it's just the approach we take. So it's a, it's a place full of a lot of positive energy, I think, which makes, um, makes it possible to do the things that we're trying to do. Um, so yeah, I think we, we, we've always approached this as, you know, a lot to accomplish, but let's do it in the right way and uh, let's take care of our people and all of our constituents along the way as we do it. Has there been a situation where you personally or the company itself faced a, um, a scenario where those values were threatened? And how did, what was the response to that? Sure, we face that a lot. Um, you know, we face it in really small ways around instances between people where we have to get involved. Um, but I mean, the most public one that we faced, which was, you know, I'm sure some of you heard about, uh, was the, you know, the immigration ban and executive order work that happened earlier this year. And, uh, you know, that, the response we had where we made, we felt as though that threatened not only our employee community, but our driver population. Um, and we felt as though we needed to make a statement to our employees to let folks know that we were supporting them. Um, and we sent an internal email letting people know that we were going to be taking care of our employees who were faced with any challenges around this action. Um, and that the founders felt so strongly about it that they took a personal, you know, made a commitment to making a you know, million dollar donation to the ACLU, which was something that happened between them in you know the wee hours of a morning after all of this was happening um you know i was on the phone with john about it at 11 o'clock at night and we sent a five o'clock 5 a.m email or something i mean it was you know it was, it was happening in real time and really originated out of the the power of you know their perspective on the world and their uh, bias for action and their ability to make a, a commitment that they felt so strongly about so um, you know, we don't spend, we didn't, we didn't spend a lot of time hemming and hawing about that. We made a values driven decision very quickly because it was an easy one to make. Um, so yeah, we, when we feel as though our values are threatened, we absolutely either have to stand up for them and reiterate them in a very public way, which that was to our employees, um, or do things on a daily basis to support our people, whether they're our drivers, or our passengers, or our employees We're faced with that all the time. Great. So I'm going to use the analogy of a 24-hour of a clock for my next two questions. Mm. 
So the first question is, what does a typical day look like for you? Mm. Typical day. Uh, usually my day, not to get all you know in the middle of my weeds, but uh, I get up and I spend the morning getting ready. I spend breakfast with my kids, which is kind of my one time that I see my little one. Um, I go to work from, I usually get to the office about nine and I do calls on the way in. I live in the East Bay. And a couple nights a week I work pretty late and a couple nights a week I try to go home at six and spend the evening with my kids. And then I'm back on and usually working till about 11.30. I try not to go past 11.30, but I work till about 11.30 and then I go to bed and start it all over again the next day. And so what are some of the... the and then my work day is filled with either two minute, five minute, 10 minute, 15 minute, 30, no, I'm just kidding. I, I, I am on, I'm on a clock all day long and uh, usually 30 minute meetings, sometimes 15 minute meetings. Um, I spend my entire day packed going from topic to topic to topic to topic. Um, I oversee five different departments and so it's quite a range of activity. Um, and my, sorry, an anecdote on that, which on the personal side, I joke that my, with my husband that vacation is only constituted when there is no clock. Mm. So my only definition of vacation is that there can be no sense of time mm. because I spend my entire day on a schedule and on a clock. So that's my kind of side anecdote about vacation equals no clock, don't want to see a clock. <laughs> so it's a, it's a real privilege to have you for an hour, <laughs> oh, given, no. given the, the hectic uh, I don't schedule. see any clocks in here. Oh, <laughs> no, there are <laughs> We're going to take that down. <laughs> So if I, if I can just probe a little bit, what are some of the topics that cross your desk and sure. are a part of your conversation on a daily basis? Oof. Just to um, give us a glimpse of yeah. kind of the, the, yeah. uh, so the dynamic I, uh, pace that you're Yeah, you're, you're absolutely. So maybe I'll start just by telling you the, the departments I oversee. I oversee brand marketing, product marketing, our creative department, our communications department, and our insights and research group. So those are the five groups inside of our brand marketing organization. And then I partner incredibly closely with our growth and engagement marketing team, which is our performance side of the house. And they, run, they sit in our growth organization. So um, I am in anything from agency meetings about um, advertising and media decisions to uh, this thing just hit on the comms front and we have to develop a response right now on, you know, or this is a highly watched category. It, it's reported on every day. Um, so a tremendous amount of comms work to uh, overseeing a really big team and having to make decisions about personnel things and so a lot of HR stuff um, to executive meetings where we're talking about everything outside of marketing. So having to come and represent marketing but uh, be part of much bigger conversations around what we're doing on the product side or autonomous or, um, you know, just a myriad of different discussions um, to, gosh, let me think of some other, I mean, I, I think that that's a lot, but that's, but that's probably just a, like an eighth of what probably crosses my desks, but that's, that's enough probably that's, that's for you. A, that's a nice snapshot that <laughs> yeah. you, you provided to us. So let me uh, switch the clock to the, the night hours and a question I like to ask senior executives and managers is you know what keeps you up late at night? I know there's the, the night is is short for you given uh, yeah. all the things that are happening in your life. But but what are some of the topics that keep you and your colleagues up late at night in running the business? Yeah, I mean, so I try to have um, 
you know, my days be very much uh, conversations in which decisions can get made. And so I try to not spend my nights too, too much actually catching up on the things that have happened throughout the day. And then separate from just the work streams around stuff that has to get done and shipped and decisions that have to be made and email and all that kind of stuff. Um, the stuff that keeps me up at night, honestly, is, is, you know, are we thinking big enough? Are we thinking broad enough? Are we being too tactical? Am I, is my team thinking big enough? Um, how can I make sure that my team feels like they can be leaders rather than just executors? Um, it's a lot of, you know, leadership, trying to pick myself up out of the weeds. And I find the quiet hours of the night or the quiet hours of the early morning um, to be the time in which I try to take a step back from, you know, the grind of email and the grind of meetings and, and really ask myself some of the really tough business questions around whether or not we're thinking far enough afield. Um, because when you have worked for someone else whose job it is to stay up at night thinking about these things, it's easy to just be the person executing. And when you are in the role of making sure that you're representing a, team, a, a broad discipline and a team, um, I'm trying on that new hat of making sure that I'm the one thinking far enough afield. So am I thinking around corners? Am I thinking, you know, six months down the line, um, 12 months down the line, 18 months down the line to make sure that we're not just in kind of today's tactics? What you just described reminds me of uh, a recent uh, article in the New York Times that talked about what's called uh, a Schultz hour. Uh, named after one of our former secretaries of state, yeah. George Schultz, who asked his, his uh, um, staff to carve out at least one hour a week where no calls, no appointments, and he can just shut the door and think and reflect yeah. on the, the key issues and the big questions that face him and his department. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you're trying to carve that time out uh, throughout the day. I am. I want to mix week. that with another Times article I read that talked about how you can rewire your thinking by being outside in green space. And so I would like to combo that mission of carving out time an hour um, with, can I get outside and take a walk? Can I get out and see the sun a little bit and get outside of you know mm -hmm. the interior of a building? Um, because I do find that that's also really, really important to take a, take a mental break. I, I, you know, I think all of us can appreciate when you have a very, very deep groove worn you know, around work and getting out of that groove can help you reevaluate and rethink the way that you approach something. So, great, great. Yeah. So I'm going to uh, ask a, a few final questions before opening it up to, um, to the audience for your questions so you can start thinking about what you would want to ask uh, Melissa. So uh, at Babson, we, we uh, want our students to embrace uncertainty and ambiguity, but we also want them to understand the process of failure because through failure we believe that you can learn a number of lessons that you can't necessarily do without going through it. Mm. And so I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share uh, an instance or two in your career where failure was clearly facing you and mm. how you had to cope and uh, wrestle with those conditions so that you can learn and move on and become yeah. even better at what you yeah. do. Um, well, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about two. One is more of a macro being part of a team in which a business is closed. You know, that is a, like, you know, it wasn't me personally, but 500 of us having to say, wow, the thing we've been working on is now shut down and it's over, uh, is a very odd experience um, and one that that uh, is kind of, you have to really wrestle with a lot of kind of personal and professional questions around, 
your identity when you go through something like that. I'm sure some of you have gone through similar situations. So um, that one was a big one when Flip closed. And then, you know, another experience, I was at Pandora for five years and built that team and had a lot of success there. But I remember an early project on, you know, running an ad campaign that did not perform the way we had promised to the board, to the executive team, to, you know, the, the marketing organization and didn't meet targets that we expected. And that, having run that project, I felt obviously a tremendous amount of responsibility for that. And the thing that I, you know, took away from it, I, I'm pretty hard on myself, as I think a lot of self-motivated people are, but the thing I took away from it was, was a feeling of um, there are seismic shifts happening in the world of media and advertising. And if I'm not thinking about where that's going and just kind of working on what I know to be historically true, um, then I'm not doing the right work here. And so it, it was this added pressure to ensure that not only am I a strategic marketer, but that I'm also getting really in, in the weeds on um, how media works these days and how I can do that better, um, which if any of you manage that is, is something that changes on an hourly basis. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've had plenty of failures in my career and I do believe a lot in um, making sure that failure doesn't have to feel as though it is a negative thing. It can feel as though it's just a moment to re-up and re-calibrate re, um, into a new normal and, and find, um, find the lesson uh, and pick yourself up. Um, and I've had that on the personal side and the professional side. And um, you know, I think being comfortable with ambiguity also comes with being comfortable with not knowing and being okay, feeling okay to fail. Great. And so my last question to you is, if you can share one piece of advice with our audience about how they can become a change maker or an innovator in their mm. workplace or in their careers. Because clearly you've been doing that yeah. in the different places where you've been uh, working and uh, we'd love to hear what uh, Yeah, no, what I, I, it's a doing. great question. It's a great question. I, um, I think that I have always found you know, I was I actually having a conversation with somebody today, you know, that was saying, uh, "What's what is your own internal imposter syndrome?" You know, there's there we all walk around with our like inner voice that says, "Am I, you know, capable of this? Am I doing the right thing? Am I do I have all the answers?" Um, and we were talking about that, and I was like, "Yeah, I think that's kind of the key to it is that I I feel okay with actually letting that fuel me and fire me instead of feeling like." Um, that's a detriment. So if you can take the thing um, that you doubt and turn that into fuel to make change in an organization, like we've never tried this before. I don't know if it's going to work. I have an idea, um, but, I, but I feel as though I'm passionate enough about it that I want to go try. Um, then I find that you can get a lot of respect in an organization by being willing to go out on a limb and try something rather than just playing it safe all the time. Mm -hmm. Sounds like, uh, uh, I mean, at Babson, we, we try to encourage our students to take action. Mm -hmm. And uh, certainly you've been doing that uh, throughout your career. So that's a, that's a nice way to summarize yeah. um, uh, how we can be change makers in, in our workplaces and wherever we are right now. So with that, I want to open it up to all of you uh, to ask your questions that you've been uh, considering based on the various topics that we've been covering in this conversation. So. How about in the front row here? We have a microphone. If you can speak clearly into the microphone and uh, take it from there. Hi there. Hi. Um, I would love to hear more about Lyft's 
about the role of social doing social good and social impact plays in Lyft as an organization and was excited to learn about the Roundup and Donate program. And, you know, from the beginning, it kind of, my perception, and I think the broad perception is, you know, Lyft are the good guys, mm. Uber are the bad guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I'm, I'm also just interested in hearing about how decisions get made, too, about various social good initiatives. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so yes, we, we definitely feel a lot of comfort in taking care of our communities. And you know, it's, it's, it's important to us because we need to show up and support the people on the ground every day who are taking rides, right? So our driver community and our, and our passenger community. So we've always been a values-driven organization. We always, haven't always had the ability to act on that all the time. You know, I mean, when you're an early stage startup and just trying to make sure the app works and that people can find rides. You don't have a ton of time or ability to think about all of these macro programs. Um, more recently, we have uh, been able to turn some more attention just having a bigger employee base and being able to turn some of our attention to these issues um, and have been able to enact programs like Roundup and Donate because, you know, that was, that, and, and going back to my, um, ex my principle earlier around make it happen, um, you know, we are truly a bottoms-up organization that is in many ways led by a very young, um, energetic, and values-driven uh, team. And that particular program was written on a weekend, PRD was written over a weekend um, by a product marketing manager, and that person was able to pull together an idea engage engineering, engage product managers, and get something stood up within three weeks, which was just, you know, mind-blowing to, to many of us. And um, so we, we really take a, an approach of enacting that make-it-happen spirit and putting a lens on it of what's best for our community and what's best for our driver population and our passenger population. So um, that one is in play. We've got a few other things that we're working on. Um, you know, we're not in a position as a super, you know, big, well-established company to go write large checks. And so we, we have to find ways in which we can use our product for good. Um, and so we're, we're thinking through all of that, you know, day in and day out, and not only trying to make the, the, the great operations happen on the ground, but doing so um, meaningfully. I was just in market this week in Las Vegas uh, on Monday with a G our GM uh, there and his team and just listening to what our GMs and our city marketing leads do on a daily basis for our driver population in market is just remarkable to me. Like it doesn't happen just at headquarters, it happens in the field too. So, so we had a question in the right behind in the second row. Hello, so um, Rideshare has taken many different forms internationally as well as nationally mm -hmm. with Waze's new program as well as scooter rideshare that happens a lot internationally. Mm -hmm. What excites you about the new innovations in rideshare and where do you want to see the future of it? Oh boy. Um, I am ex I mean I'm excited about all of it honestly because I feel like we are we are so many people are racing at it and the approach that so many that companies are taking is all you know slightly different. Um, and the thing that makes me most excited is that by having the energy across so many players and so many disciplines, uh, it means we're not in this, in some ways I find comfort that we're not in this alone, right? And that, that big broad vision is not gonna be accomplished by one company. That big broad vision is gonna be accomplished by a number of different players and all of the, you know, uh, the 
the, the kind of economic and um, policy changes that are going to happen that come out of that. And so in order to enact that massive, massive change, it's going to take tremendous energy from many people. And so I'm most excited about just the fact that this is um, becoming so real for so many people and that that broad vision can be accomplished um, because we're all turning our really uh, in um, impressive human capital and human uh, capability to this problem. Yeah. Over here on this side. Oh, you're going to... Anybody, anybody. Hi, my name is Nina, and I'm really I have a question. Um, when you moved to the Bay Area, mm -hmm. um, you interviewed with Apple and other tech firms, and mm -hmm. obviously in the Bay Area, there's a lot of choices. So how did you land on the job at the CPG, I think Diamond Food yeah, something Diamond Foods. company. Mm -hmm. yep. uh, how did that happen? And how did that experience help you with your career after that? So background, I moved, I just recently moved here as well. Oh, so like yeah. same kind of process, I followed my husband here. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a really intense process. So, you know, one lens is taking a super analytical approach and I had spreadsheets that, you know, what are the biggest industries here? What are the biggest companies here? What is the most opportunity? Like taking a super analytical, you know, kind of view on just what's the, what is in the market here? Um, the other approach for me as a marketer was what is the right choice for being a marketer? And so, you know, marketing is a discipline. I was joking. I'll, I'll get to that in a second, actually. Um, marketing is a discipline that is not understood necessarily by the tech industry in the same way that CPG industries understand it and the CPG industry understands it. And so when I was looking at post-business school, what was the best investment for me? I, you know, that first lens of like marketing rotational, business rotational, kind of broad view. And then the other place was CPG is going to be the place where I'm going to get the most training as a marketer. And so that, that helped me make that decision. It was a little bit of an odd decision, not because of the industry and my commitment to marketing, but just because I was in the Bay Area. Like being a CPG company in the Bay Area is a little bit um, out of sync with you can go to a lot of other towns in, in the US and um, find a number of CPG companies, but there aren't that many of them here and it's not really the core industry. Um, but I did, I did find that it was the right choice for me as a marketer because it was the place where I was surrounded by an entire company of marketers. Um, even in, when you work in CPG, even people who run ops and run finance are still kind of marketing people by trade. Um, and so you're surrounded in an entire building full of marketers in many ways. And um, that is not the case in tech. In fact, uh, I think technology companies don't understand marketing at all, um, uh, you know, I, I can say that as a marketer in tech. I was joking with my some colleagues at Airbnb on email just this morning, actually, on a particular project in which we're having to. They just did a huge project on brand valuation and econometric modeling, and we're about to take a look at doing some of that work. So I was doing some knowledge sharing conversations with them, and I we were joking back and forth on. Uh, I think we could. Our, her staff and my staff, I think we could fund a group therapy session on being brand marketers with inside of tech companies um, because it's it's tough. You're really having to explain brand value and long-term um, investment in brand and what that you know what that means to people who are very very accustomed to short-term um, you know performance marketing and short-term ROI and. Um, you know, that, that journey is not an easy one. I liken it to, I always, you know, talk to my CFO about, you know, this is like 
investment management. You know, this is, if you don't plan to retire through day trading, you plan to retire through having the right balance of a portfolio. Um, and if we are in this as a one-year company, we would run one playbook. If we're in this as a five-year company, we would run a different one. If we're in this as a hundred-year company, um, we would run a different one. So we need to understand our, our, our tenure here and what we're aiming for, and then we need to set this company up and the marketing portfolio up to achieve those goals. And you know, I, I, the most salient kind of analogy I've ever been able to have with a CFO is about investment portfolio. It seems to kind of be the language that, that <laughs> resonates. Um, and so to get back to your question on how did I choose that, I felt as though that was the right choice for me as a marketer. Um, and I'm glad I didn't end up in one of those other jobs that I was interviewing for because I don't think I would have gotten that right training um, with a marketing hat uh, that I needed in order to build my career. Yeah. Okay, since we have quite a few questions. We have time for two more. Two, two more. more. Yeah. Okay. All right. So maybe uh, short responses. So sure. 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 All right. Yeah. So how about gentleman here? Hi. Uh, my name is Tashar. Uh, I want to kind of pick your brain on. So as Uber is self-imploding, well, imploding, uh, they first have the delete Uber campaign happen, then you have the ACLU happen, and then um, I also noticed how. Lyft released the survey results from Gartner about how drivers are happier and they're more engaged. Uh, and then things about the sexual harassment at Uber, the mm -hmm. culture there, uh, Travis's video. All these opportunities appear to you to basically say, we're not Uber mm -hmm. as a marketing uh, mm -hmm. person. How do you make those decisions on not to go into like that realm? Because there's only two companies right now, Lyft and Uber. And you could easily play this thing that we're not them and we do everything like this. But I see them left doing a more restrained approach. So could you walk me through how you got to that point? Well, uh, if you followed us up um, some of our work last year, we actually ran a pretty, it was, the right, it was launching two weeks after I started. Um, we ran a pretty big campaign in Q4 that was actually impersonating Uber in some ways in our ad campaign. So um, you know, it was not explicit. It was implicit, but anybody who followed the category, that was, you know, kind of implied. And, you know, I, when I arrived, um, my observation about our brand strategy was that we were not articulating who we were. We were articulating who we weren't. And I actually think that from a long-term brand position, we need to do a better job of articulating who we are. And so... Um, we have been working to ensure that we are just showing up every day and, and talking about ourselves and demonstrating who we are as a brand. Um, and I think that the more that we can do that, uh, the more you can watch what's going on in the category and infer that for yourself around which, which choice you want to make. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. How about, how about we go over on this side for our final question and the gentleman over here. Thanks. Just so I wanted to hear uh, some of your thoughts about uh, when to pull a plug on something that, um, you know, a campaign or some sort of uh, marketing strategy that you were fully, wholeheartedly into, and just the, be it uh, qualitative or quantitatively, uh, just didn't work out and pan out, and, you know, some of the things that went into that type of uh, decision-making process. 
Yeah, um, I had that experience at Pandora, um, and I was kind of the, that feeling of failure. Uh, we we looked at all the metrics around. Um, you know, we made a hasty decision to not not hasty. We made a decision to not add tests before we ran creative. Anybody who manages creative knows that that's a risky position to. It's risky both to test and to not test. Um, and we ran something that didn't resonate with consumers and that wasn't performing very well. And we made a pretty quick decision to go ahead and pull it out of market. It wasn't doing damage, but it just wasn't doing everything we wanted it to do. And when you're managing budgets, it's all about, am I investing this money in places that are going to move the needle on the business? And if they're not, then I'd like to you know, pull that out of market as soon as possible and try to re, you know, divert funds and reinvest elsewhere on things that are working. So, um, you know, digital media these days, you can get reads pretty darn quick. And so within a month, we were pulling out of activity in order to, um, you know, refund, reinvest elsewhere. So it's, it's all about watching the media, watching the um, studies coming back and, and making those changes. And I've come to kind of get more comfortable with pivots more quickly in order to just, re you know, manage the portfolio well. So I know that uh, many of you have uh, more questions to ask, but we're short on time. So think of this as just the conversation starter and uh, encourage you to uh, stick around and uh, continue asking the questions amongst yourselves as well as sure. of, of Melissa during our uh, reception hour that follows. So uh, I, th I think, I hope you agree that uh, we've had a, a wonderful conversation with Melissa. Thank we've you. learned about her career and all of the wonderful things that she's done um, in the different places where she's worked. And uh, as a Babson alum, uh, and speaking on behalf of my faculty colleagues, students, and alums here, we're very proud of all that you've accomplished and we'll look forward to seeing great things happening in your career in the years to come. So thank you very much. Please join Lovely to be here. And, and thank you. Thanks for joining our conversation. For additional events, tools, and articles, subscribe at thrive.freerange.com.